Welcome everyone to Moraine Park Technical College's Talent Talk podcast. I'm Kelly Karpinski, a business development manager in the Economic and Workforce Development Division of MPTC. Today we are talking with Chad Dull, the principal consultant and CEO of Poverty Informed Practice, LLC. Chad provides presentations, workshops, and individual consultation on how to better serve individuals who live in poverty. We'll discuss why it's important to be poverty informed and how understanding poverty can help businesses tap a new talent pool. Chad, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Great, well, let's get started. I think it would be helpful to understand the extent of poverty in Wisconsin. Um, how much of the population is living in crisis and how has that changed in recent years? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question to start off with because defining poverty can be a, a little challenging for folks. Um, so there's this thing that a lot of people are familiar with, the federal poverty level. Um, and so we'll start there. Uh, so the federal poverty level is a, very old measure actually developed in the 1960s where they took the average food budget a person would need multiplied it by three and that was the number they came up with um, and we've used it believe it or not for the next 50 years with inflation adjustments so currently the federal poverty limit for a family of three is twenty four thousand eight hundred and sixty dollars uh, not a salary that many of us would want to live on uh, even as an individual much less a, a family um, and about between 10 and 11% of Wisconsin families fall below that number. Now, sometimes when I tell people that number, that seems relatively manageable. There's about 6 million people in the state of Wisconsin. 10% even would be 600,000. Poverty, if poverty were a city, it'd be the largest city in Wisconsin. It would compete with Milwaukee as its own place. But... The story is actually worse than that. Um, most of us would agree that poverty measure is not a very good indicator of folks who are struggling because of finance. Um, and I think maybe you had mentioned to me in some of our communication that you're going to talk later on about what a lot of folks refer to as the Alice number, uh, which is a United Way measure that really talks about families that are in struggling to meet their basic needs, uh, typically working families. That number is closer to 34 or 35% in Wisconsin. North of 2 million people in Wisconsin are in a limited income situation where they would have trouble meeting their basic needs and severe trouble meeting any emergencies. Um, now you asked, how has that number changed? Sadly, it just hasn't changed much. We've been in that kind of somewhere between 10 to 13, 14% for, I, I'm 52 years old, we've been in it most of my life. Um, there was a slight dip uh, of all times during the pandemic. Sometimes that seems counterintuitive to people that poverty went down. But if you think about it, there were lots of economic supports that we brought in to kind of keep people from going under. Um, but historically, that I, you know, and that, that kind of, federal poverty level in that 10 to 15 percent range and then that much more important alice number is in that mid to upper 30s and unfortunately the alice number grows uh, last thing i would say about that is poverty is a very localized thing um, poverty looks different in different places so i live in the city of lacrosse uh, lacrosse actually has one in four people 
living in poverty. Um, you know, if I go to a more rural area, so the most impoverished county in our state is uh, Menominee County, where the Menominee, Menominee Indian Nation is, um, and they they have poverty rates in the 20 upper 20s and 30 percent. And then if you think about more affluent areas, you'll see that number go down. Um, but it's uh, I, I just think the most powerful part for me is to think about those two. 10% can seem mild, but if we think of 600,000 people, the largest, you know, that's two and a half Madisons or an entire Milwaukee of people living in poverty. Um, one, that can bother people on a humanitarian level. And really, I know we're talking uh, with business leaders today and not that business leaders aren't good humanitarians, but there's a very practical loss of potential in that poverty steals so much from people's ability to plan, to thrive and to grow, um, that it's really worth addressing as a strategy uh, from a lot of standpoints. Okay, well that, that is very interesting and very eye-opening. Um, so I, I've, you know, I've looked at your website, I've uh, kind of followed you here for a little bit and you talk about not only welcoming people who live in poverty, um, but, making them feel wanted specifically. Mm -hmm. And as I understand, uh, this was a focus when you previously served in leadership roles, both in K through 12 and in post-secondary education. So how did you and others help impoverished students feel welcome and wanted? Yeah, no, thanks for asking. Um, so the first thing to note about that is that um, so a lot of this work is work I've done research on, but I also tell people I operate from a very personal standpoint. I, you know, like a lot of people, I'm someone that grew up without really any resources, uh, child, a young, divorced, teen parents, and and I and in talking with people across the country, I've come to find that like that background really defines me and some of my behaviors always, and it's not just me. When I talk to people. It's that notion of feeling on the outside, of feeling less than, of being, you know, I already gave away my birth date. I was born in 1970 and here in 2023, I'm still not always trusting of people. Like when I come into a space, am I really supposed to be there? So that's the difference between welcome and wanted. I spent the majority of my career uh, in technical and community colleges, which on paper are the place for everyone, right? They're, um, come on in, it's an open admission college, it's a beautiful thing, but in practice, we haven't really lived up to that, that we know our success rates for low-income students, for students of color, you know, for people with barriers are not where they are for other students and certainly not where we want them to be. And so we've talked about this notion of, uh, if you've been around long enough, we used to talk about diversity and equity and we would use this word tolerance like back in the 80s, like it was really good to be tolerant of people that were different. And we wouldn't really say that now. Like most of us would be kind of, ooh, that's embarrassing to say, yes, I tolerate you. Um, I think we're going to see the same shift in the difference between welcome and wanted. So it's great to have everyone's welcome where I am or welcome at my college, welcome at my business. But if you're just going to keep doing things the way you always have, I'm gonna know I don't belong, right? Yeah, I'm welcome to come in, but I better adjust to you. And the difference between being wanted is that that place, the colleges I've worked and the other places have been, are striving to answer the question all the time, do people like me belong here? 
And you asked about how to do that. So you have to think about your policies, your procedures, your facilities, and your behaviors. Um, so I do this as consulting work. This is, we could spend a day on this. The 30 second version is, we use a tool we call no audits. We go into our organizations and we start aggressively looking, where are we telling people what not to do, what they could do wrong, messages that say you're not supposed to be here, and where can we flip those on their head? Um, the best example I can give you, I was working at a college in Minnesota during the pandemic, and like all colleges all the time, but especially in that time, we were worried about enrollment. And we went into all of our marketing and our messaging and everything and started putting the word yes in it. Yes, we're going to be open. Yes, we're as safe as we can be. Yes, this is a place where you should be. And we bucked the trend. Our enrollment went up uh, during the pandemic for significant parts of it. You can do that across your organization. So when you come into someone's facility, are there lots of signs that tell people, like literally the signs that tell people what not to do, that are phrased negatively, that might be in all caps? Can those go? Can they be changed? Do you have policies built up to support people getting around barriers? Um, do your facilities include, you know, if you have a place with artwork, we used to put up pictures of actual students, a huge variety of them. So I'd see, do people like me go here? Yeah, uh, you know, I'm in my campus in Winona, Minnesota, right? A little city. That's not only somebody like me, that's somebody I know. And then in terms of behavioral things, we really paid attention to who frontline people were. Um, a lot of colleges, I think a lot of organizations get it backwards. They put entry level people who maybe don't have a ton of training at their places of reception. And you want your best people there. And you want ideally people with lived experience that the your customers are having because people can tell. Right. My joke was always when I used to tell front office staff, you are the used car salespeople. Nobody gets off the lot. Right, we don't get off the lot without putting them into a class. Um, last thing I tell you about, just as another example of another thing people can do, we're trained in America to only talk about poverty in one way, how we got out of it, right? A thing I overcame. There's a lot of stigma, a lot of shame. Um, I was probably 40 years old before I started talking about growing up as a poor kid and the good parts of that, the things I learned. I always say the things I wish my kids knew without having to live. Um, so we can start to talk about it if you have those experiences, because then again, those people that come in feeling they're not sure I'm wanted here. Am I an outsider here? Oh, there's people like me here. Um, in college settings, you can put it right in the syllabus. Tell people if you're having trouble finding food, finding a place to sleep, finding mental health care, let me know. It does two things. You might actually get to help someone who tell you their problem, but it also sends a message from the institution that there must be people like me here, right? They wouldn't put it in an important document like a syllabus unless it was real. So just to kind of follow up on that, you know, so all of that, I always tell people, you know, if you meet me for 20 minutes, you can figure out how I vote. It's also irrelevant. Right, you can make the case for this work from any perspective you want. So you wanna be a bleeding heart, do-gooder, great. It's the right thing to do. You wanna grow the business that you're in, making people feel wanted is right on the money, right? There's there's a business case for doing this, whether it's a college or any other kind of business. Um, we bring those people in and then the last step in that 
is when you start to gather populations of, in this case, low income people, if you really engage them, they know the solutions. The people closest to the problems, they know what's getting in their way. And if you can open up to them, that does two things. You start to solve problems, but you also again create a sense of they are valued, they're wanted. So that notion of moving from you're welcome here to you're wanted here is a big paradigm shift. And I think could really, well, I've seen it pay off. I mean, uh, you know, I, again, my industry was education. I saw enrollment growth everywhere we did it. That's really fascinating. Um, and, you know, it, it makes me think when you said you could put it in the syllabus in education, there's so many places that you could say that within business, right? Um, Absolutely. I, I do have a business client who I learned recently, they were having trouble with um, people not coming to work, either absenteeism or coming in late. And they they found that a lot of the reason had to do with homelessness, um, and, you know, and other issues. And once they found that those employees resources, then that problem went away. So it's really it, it's just very interesting well, and, how and you, you bridge know, that. I, I know we're going to talk a little more about the business side of things, too. But that idea of mm -hmm. every employer now knows, especially in this tight labor market, employee retention is the whole game, right? So, it, you know, kudos to whoever that was of saying, let's take one step further and say, you know, what's getting in the way? And then, boy, if you have mm -hmm. the ability to remove or reduce that barrier, it, you know, that pays off in every direction. And I think um, the winning employers, the word gets out, right? The word gets out that this is a place I want to work because I'm a single parent, but they understand the challenges of a single parent or being a caregiver of an aging person. Or frankly, I think back to my own, uh, you know, younger days of having a bad car. I, I've lived in rural Wisconsin most of my life and car trouble was a nightmare in those days. And I always tell people, if you can't think of an example of like the difference between being poor and being more in more stability, think about your car. You know, if my, my daughter's car didn't start the other morning, so we had to get it towed. It's a pain, right? It's a pain to charge on my card. 25 years ago, if my car needed to get towed, I don't know how I'm getting to school. I'm in danger of losing my job and I have no idea how I'm paying for it. You think about the, the level of stress that folks are living under. It's just different and, and it's easy to lose touch with that. Definitely. So um, as we said, you know, we are going to talk about business. So the strategy that you used in education, how uh, have you seen that strategy work in business, first of all, and, and how can businesses do this to tap into a talent pool that they may have not really tapped into? Yeah, so we've alluded to some of that already, but I think so the first answer to your question is yes, I've seen businesses do this. It's a strategy. I mean, I think, you know, it it is from whatever perspective you come from, it's a solid business strategy. Um, like I said, recently working in higher ed, didn't have any employers in either of the places I work telling me we've got plenty of employees and we're fine. We're not even worrying about hiring people. Everybody's in a tight labor market. So you have to go to what I think of as an untapped group. And I, and I think, the companies I've seen do this well and get the payoff from it, there's some common things. There are companies that think a lot about, um, you're probably familiar with this notion of a triple bottom line, right? That they think about people and profits, and then oftentimes they add the planet to that, right? Um, 
but that I, you know, those not that the planet isn't important, but those first two, you know, can you balance people? And again, I think the business case is I've been reading this for 40 years. Getting a new employee costs more than retaining a current employee. Everybody, we know this, but we don't always act on it. Um, so this is really a strategy about how do I, you know, not only attract perhaps a, a new workforce, but I build my organization in a way that retains those people. Because really the, the opposite of where we're trying to get is this, this churn cycle. Right, you know, places that struggle. Yeah, I bring in people, they don't really fit our mold. You know, well, maybe we'll go back to what we said before. They were welcome here, but we didn't do anything to make them feel wanted. So let me give you a couple of very specific examples. And um, there's tons of good companies in the world. So if I name any, I'm not excluding others. They're just examples I've seen. Um, but I, I did some work with the uh, Pablo Group in Eau Claire, and they were interested in a number of facets of uh, diversity, but they have a, a variety of businesses they're involved in. One of them is hospitality. They run hotels. And one of the accommodations they made, they knew that their housekeeping staff, you know, that tended to be a lower paying job, an entry level job, and, and the folks who were doing that, you know, you didn't have to have a lot of academic credentials. So they're more likely to serve people, to hire people living in poverty. One of the things they did that I thought was just a tiny but brilliant little innovation, they put in showers for employees in their facilities. So when you came to work, showers and laundry actually, so you didn't have to worry about making sure my uniform was clean, or if you're someone, oftentimes people in that level of employment are working a couple of jobs or have a lot of other commitments, or could be living in difficult situations where grabbing a shower is not a given. Um, their employee retention went up. Uh, they, you know, it's there's other powerful tools, paying a living wage, all those sort of things. But that notion of, and again, if you think we talked about those basic needs statements, that's a statement without being on paper, right? Nope, there's a place here for you to get yourself ready for work. That tells your workforce, oh yeah, we know, we know, right? You're welcome here. The, the, we want you to do this, and, and we know there are barriers getting in your way. Let's try to knock down this little one. Um, on a, on a larger scale, uh, I was familiar with um, a company. I, they were called Tech Dump at the time, which I thought was probably not a great name. Now they're called Repowered up in the in the Twin Cities in Minnesota. And they hire almost exclusively out of uh, a population of folks who were incarcerated, like coming out of incarceration. And one of the accommodations they made um, was they allowed a number of absences early on in your tenure at the company because they recognized that people have a lot of obligations when they're working through the justice system. I might have to see a probation agent. I'm trying to get my life back on track. So they had kind of a scaffolded leave policy, which was almost backwards from what you see. You didn't earn more leave as time went on. You started out with a bunch of it and they had a 95% employee retention rate. You know, I think the, yeah, the kind of, the secret sauce in reaching into these underserved populations is, boy, when you get it right and you get the reputation as an employer who will work with you, you get a loyal employee who stays, right? Because somebody believed in me and somebody acknowledged, yeah, it's not easy. I, I always talk about there's the pace of planning, which is how middle-class lives and most businesses and most schools are set up. And there's the pace of survival, which is where people in poverty live. And we don't align those things very well. And, and then the things that seem perfectly normal to us, 
right? That idea of well, why don't they just? Well, this is just common sense. Well, it's not common sense because their circumstance is different. Um, a couple other things that I've seen kind of looking around the country talking about this. I think the companies that are bigger companies, and I, I, I'm sure we'll have somebody on the podcast who's got a three-person firm who's going to go, Chad, I can't have my own health clinic. I get it, but you know, I so. I'm from Wisconsin, right? So I love Quick Trip, and I'm here at the heart of Quick Trip in La Crosse. Um, they're doing primary care clinics. They're doing daycare for employees. I mean, if you think about that as a series of barriers to remove, um, those seem like really wise investments to me. And and maybe the last thing I'd see is, you know, what's your what can businesses do? And I have seen successful examples. What's your feedback loop? And how are you making sure your feedback loop includes your entry level employees, which is often where your employees, your low income employees are, are situated, which makes me think of one last thing, Kelly, and I'm giving a speech here, but you can uh, decide what to do with all that. The other thing you can assume if you grew up like me, so I'm a first generation college student who grew up in poverty. Do you know what most of us become in the world? I mean, the most popular professions are teacher and social worker. I'm a teacher by training because that's what we knew. I think employers who can, so colleges talk about guided pathways, employers that can say, here's your career pathway. This is how you come in. Uh, well, I'm, I feel like I should get an endorsement from Quick Trip on this, but I've spent enough time with them. There are so many employees at a business like Quick Trip that started out at an entry level job and progressed through because I think in part, because they're a good company, but two, there's clear pathways. How do I get from here to there? And I think you should assume that a lot of people who grew up like me don't know. I don't know how to translate that career on your loading dock into a career in logistics to eventually being the person that oversees your transportation department. Um, so you can, I think that's a strategy companies can invest in. How do I move through this company? And, and what needs to happen for that to go. But those are, so yes, the short answer to you, instead of the longest question is, yes, this is a great business strategy. And I think uh, um, I think more and more employers are gonna move that way as the labor market. I haven't seen anything that says it's gonna get less tight unless artificial intelligence takes all our jobs, so. I would agree. <laughs> it, uh, it the the numbers are not uh, are not going to get better as far as the shortage the labor shortage goes. Um, so many thoughts as you were talking. First of all, you know, a ninety five percent retention rate. Wow, uh, so many businesses would love 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 <laughs> to have that. <laughs> many of them I know are in the opposite. Uh, you know, going in the opposite direction. Unfortunately. Um, you know, and just you're talking about the the career pathways and, you know, like you said, for those who who did grow up in poverty um, and then, you know, are thinking about going to school. I had a conversation with a former boss of mine many, many years ago, um, and I remember, you know, he him saying like, well, why don't they just go to school? You know, why, you know, why, the, where there's a will, there's a way, you can find help, those kinds of things. And I argued there are so many other things going on in life that they can't even imagine. Like, 
you know, and, and we were talking specifically four years at the time, even. So it's like a four year college, all that money, you know, you can't even, you can't even comprehend for somebody who's not sure what's happening next week, <laughs> you know, to think about taking on this big amount of debt or, you know, even if it is trying for scholarship, there's just a lot. It's just a lot. Um, it's that thing I mentioned about the, the pace of planning, right? Poverty really steals your ability to plan. Right. Yeah, I think that's a, we, what does higher ed sell, Kelly? They sell delayed gratification, right? Yes. <laughs> give me a year, give me two years, give me four. And, and, and delayed gratification is a bit of a luxury. Yeah, true. And, and I think the same is true for the pathways as far as even thinking about it, just like you said, you know, um, it struck me when you said that it's like, you know, my argument for why can't, you know, a lot of these, those who live in poverty go to school? Well, same thing with the career pathway. I mean, they don't, they don't know what they don't know. Right. And, and, well, and you know, so even contemplating that or even thinking that they could do that is is probably beyond comprehension. Right. Well, and, and I think there's a lot of hidden rules in workplaces. So there's a uh, I used to talk about what I would call drinks culture. Right. We're going to go out for drinks after work. And actually, that's where a lot of networking and moving ahead is done. Well, what if I have obligations where I got to be out the door at four o'clock or uh, and again, my a lot of my experiences in higher ed, but we have systems where we set up. Um, you can go to some professional development. We'll reimburse you when we get back, right? Reimbursement models screen people out because you got to have that money to float. Um, and I think, you know, you get into, there's lots of literature out there on the difference between paid and unpaid internships. Like paid internship, unpaid internships really imply a level of financial privilege that you can access different populations, but it it's hard, right? Because these are investments don't have immediate payoff, but uh, but you will access new talent pools that way. Definitely. So um, we've talked a lot already in these 20 minutes or so. Is there anything else you would want business leaders to know about poverty or, or you know, whether people are actually living in that poverty line or those, you know, yeah. who, who fit the Alice model? Yep. So a couple of things occurred to me. I, I think this notion that I always tell audiences when I talk to them, poverty is a circumstance and a context. Poverty is not a character flaw, right? It's it's a circumstance that I live in. It's a context that might affect my decision making, but there's nothing wrong with me. And I think if we approach people from that, that starts to change how we do it. Um, the other thing, two things that had I wanted to make sure people heard is that notion that as an employer, this is what we used to call a blue ocean strategy, right? I'm going out where nobody else is. If I try to build for people with barriers, I'm going to access populations other people aren't even looking at. Um, and that could really be a, a payoff. And then that notion of the pace of planning versus the pace of crisis. You know, when, when and you mentioned a story from one of your clients earlier, that notion of when they do something, they, your employees do something you don't understand, you know, go back to your Stephen Covey, right? And seek first to understand because you might be surprised. Things that might seem, you know, we tend to see not showing up for work or especially being late as disrespectful. And there might, there's reasons behind behavior. So that notion of treating poverty as a circumstance, not a character flaw uh, is a, is a, anyway, I always tell people, if you don't remember anything else I told you today, that's the thing to take away. 
All right, that's a great point. So Chad, are there um, resources that you would recommend for employers who may be looking for more information and support? Um, and I know obviously you personally probably have some resources. So, so uh, what, where can employers go? Yeah, so you're right. Uh, first place I tell you to go is to povertyinformedpractice.com. That's uh, that's me and uh, it's me and some uh, some folks that I work with. But glad to to consult, to work, to uh, to partner, to figure out how to do that. I also believe there are some organizations. I, I would encourage people to look at the work at um, it's Twin Cities Rise. Uh, is the they're the nonprofit that works with that. Uh, it's getrepowered.org, but they're working kind of partnerships between kind of social agencies and employers to find to move from welcome to wanted right because to just bring in a bunch of people to your organization to fail that's not good for them that's not good for the business i think there's examples up there uh, i give two other places that i'd encourage employers to go to um there's a group called communication across barriers simple easy to google uh, they i would love to see that's my friend dr donna beagle she has an opportunity community model it would be fascinating to see a number of business leaders in a community come together with others to, and they're really the opportunity community is all about connecting people in poverty with people in the middle class to talk about how to navigate the world, how to do that thing. And then the last thing, and this is not just to butter you up, people should be talking to their local technical college, right? I mean, education is still the best path out. And because we talked about all these time barriers, even I, so I'm a former tech college employee, but even if I wasn't, they can help you move quickly, right? Um, and they're interested in the same population. So I think those are those are absolutely places I would go. And I think, um, boy, I'm, I'm glad to talk to anyone too, just if they wanna just talk about the issue in general, because I think it's, it's important work. We've got, what did we say at the beginning? We've got somewhere between 600,000 people in poverty or 2 million people struggling financially in our own state um that need to get ahead for their well-being and their well-being would benefit all of us mm -hmm. also true well thank you so much chad for joining me today i appreciate your time and sharing your insights you bet thank you for having me all right thanks listeners this is the first episode of at least two podcasts we are developing on the effects of poverty on our communities to make sure you are among the first to know about future Talent Talk podcasts and much more, subscribe to our newsletter. To do that, you can visit moraineparkedu slash newsletter. That's moraineparkedu slash newsletter. That concludes today's Talent Talk podcast. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day. 